Good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll start off uh, with a question. Do you want to be like Jesus? A good answer. Then have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is it any wonder that he himself told us in Luke chapter 14, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Exaltation preceded by humiliation. And no one demonstrated that more than our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this context, uh, where this, the, the deep, theological treasures that I just quoted to you are actually being used as an illustration of what being like Jesus is like in community. And we can't ignore that, and we won't ignore that. So when Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he's basically saying Jesus' humiliation and his death are the ultimate examples of what I'm talking about when I, says, when I say, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit and consider others more significant, more important than yourself. Jesus is the ultimate example. On the other hand, this passage is the Mount Everest of Christology. The theology, the study of the Son of God in his person, his work, and his glory. Nothing compares to this, which most historians believe this was a hymn, this section here. I would have loved to hear the early church sing it, wouldn't you have? A, a, a hymn affirming not only his deity, and by deity I mean his godness, but the path that would exalt him, watch this, to a status even more glorious than the one he had before, if that's even possible. A path, mind you, now here's where your brain's going to take a twist, that would make him more than God. A recent survey by Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptist Writing Wing and Ligonier Ministries, revealed that evangelical churches, evangelical churches, I'm talking about churches like ours, I'm talking about churches that preach the gospel, 
This is staggering. But they discovered that there's a whole bunch of heretics in our churches, especially when it comes to our views of God and Jesus. In fact, here's one of the statements they make, and then they ask the church, these churches to, to respond. This is one of the statements. Here it is. Statement number six. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you go, hey, Amen. But did you know that 73% of these evangelical churches surveyed by Ligonier and Lifeway strongly agreed with that statement? This is appalling. Horrible theology. Men and women have died for the nature of Jesus. This is one of those things we just, we don't renege on who Christ is. In 325 AD, Constantine, the emperor of Rome at the time, having claimed Christianity himself, assembled 318 bishops from around the known Roman Empire. They came together for a full month to study the person and nature of Jesus. And there were two basic opponents to one another, and people were siding on with Arius or Athanasius. Athanasius, rather, was our hero. He is the one that we follow. Athanasius took uh, the orthodox, we would say, position, the biblical position that Jesus is God, always was God. He was the only begotten God, not made. And we believe that, amen? Arius, on the other hand, Said though, he said, though, there was a time when the sun was not. He was the highest of created beings. And they went into pitch debate for a month. Athanasius and won out. The rest of uh, Arius and a couple of other guys got exiled. But it was all a political thing because this thing continues to creep up and bite us in the behind throughout the centuries. There's an old Latin inscription written in marble. It was, we don't know when it was written, but it's classic, it's awesome. I'm using it as my outline today. And it's true. It's as if Jesus is talking to us in this inscription. I am what I was. God. You agree with that? The next line, I was not what I am. Hmm? Man. True statement. I am now called both God and man. Or we say God hyphenated God man. So let's use this inscription as our outline. Okay, here's the first point. I am, this is Jesus talking to us now, so to speak. I am what I was, God. So verse 6 says, he was in the he was in the form of God, morphe. We get our word metamorphosis from this word, to morph. Th that is, th the word form here doesn't mean just an external, like what we picture, what we can hold on to. It, it, it means their entire being. It, it carries the idea of the essence, and when it comes to Jesus, it's talking about his, his majesty. He was, is, always will be God. John put it like this in John 1.18. He said, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has revealed him. He has, the Greek says, exegeted him. 
cool word, by the way. Only time it's ever used. It means to lead out. It means to lead out. About a year and a half after my wife died, I was in this country church that was growing, and the younger people in the church were outgrowing the older people, and they were feeling a little disenfranchised. So I put together a little group, kind of like we have with our seniors here, and, and we just did fun stuff together every month. So one night I thought, well, let's have a little fun. Let's, uh, let's do an old-fashioned show-and-tell. And I said, you guys bring the things in your life that sort of are an expression of you. And I'm telling you, they brought it all out. They brought out the rocks, the knives, the cross stitch, the stitching, the pictures, I, I, everything. They didn't bring out any oils. They didn't have any of those back in that day. Sorry, I just thought I'd throw it in there. <laughs> but about 45 minutes later, Someone goes, well, what do you got, pastor? What's your show and tell? I said, I'm glad you asked. And I walked up and opened the door, and behind it was my new fiance I had proposed to the night before. Marilyn came out. And the place just erupted. They just started cheering. It was as if they were saying, this is the expression of your glory, pastor. And she was. And she is. That's the idea here with Jesus. Jesus brought out, led out, radiated out the glory of God. And so when, before he died, remember when he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I, I long to return to the glory that I had before the world began. But my favorite expression is the writer of Hebrews who describes Jesus. He says he is the, the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint. Again, this is the only time this, this is one word in the Greek, exact imprint, the impression of his, that is God's nature. That's who Jesus is. The effluence of God, the glory of God. This is why Jesus could say to Philip, who said, you know, if you show us the Father, that'll take care of things, Jesus. Philip, if you've seen me, What? You've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. This is beautiful stuff. And the point is that Jesus isn't just a reflector of God's glory. He is the glory of God. So verse 6 goes on. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. There's two huge theological words here we can't just run over. He didn't count equality with God. Look at that. By the way, this is the very reason the Jews tried to kill him repeatedly. Remember that? John chapter 5, Jesus said, My father's been working and I've been working. And they, they wanted to kill him because it tells us in John 5, 18, the reason they tried to kill him was because, and I quote, he said God was his father, watch this, making himself equal with God. It's a powerful apologetic for the deity of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses hate that verse because they say, well, he's the son of God, not God. He's God. And that's the reason why they tried to kill him. And then there's this, there's this word grasped. See it there? He didn't, he, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Have you ever uh, had a conversation with somebody uh, and told them that you were looking for your phone, but you couldn't find it? 
It was right there in your hand or it was in your pocket. Look, Jesus never needed to reach for his glory. He never had to reach for deity because he was God. He had deity in his grasp. It was already in his eternal, omnipotent hands. And by the way, the word grasp, again, it's the only time it's used here. And the reason I point this out is because we don't have anything to compare it to in the Greek New Testament. So we have to go to the outside sources. What does it mean? And there's a chase out there to find out what it means. It's variously translated in some of your Bibles. Grasp, here in the ESV. If you have a King James, it says rob. Didn't count it robbery. And it means both. The word means to seize. It also means to rob. Which, by the way, is exactly what Satan attempted to do. In Isaiah chapter 14, the son of the morning, Lucifer, he's aspiring. He says, I will be like the Most High God because he couldn't imagine himself to be anything more. He wanted to steal what Jesus already possessed. which is why we're talking about Jesus has always been God. But by the way, remember what John says about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, say it, God, always God. I am what I was, God. But there's another powerful nuance in this word grasp that we can't go without teaching on. The meaning of the word grasp also conveys the idea of holding on to something with an unwillingness to let go. Kind of like that darling little baby boy of yours. He's the darling of the family until you give him a toy and ask him to, you know, share it with somebody. Then they become Satan. <laughs> Not Jesus. The point is that Jesus didn't need to grasp at deity. Watch this, nor did he selfishly hold on to it. In fact, what he would do would make it possible, in Peter's words, for us becoming, watch this, partakers of his divine nature. Have you ever read that? Now, we're not Mormons here. We don't believe we become little gods. But when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you, he clothes you with his righteousness, and he imputes you with that, and you get the divine nature within you. This is one of the reasons why you never die. You have eternal life. It's startling, beautifully startling. And here's the point. Jesus didn't grab. He gave. That's the point. Didn't grab. He gave. Now, the second part of the inscription is the one that's sort of a brain teaser. I was not what I am. Man. It's hard for us sometimes because of these caricatures we build up in our brains about God and Jesus to see that he was not always human. He became human at a point in time. Now, verse 7 puts it like this. Watch this. He, he didn't grasp at deity. He already had it. already possessed it. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. By the way, the word form there, same word as, the, as is used earlier, though in the form of God. So it's the word morphe. Again, whatever it means earlier, means here. it means here. It's the same thing. In other words, if it means 
when it says he was in the form of God, if that means that in his essence, it's talking about his essence, his nature, his internal glory, it means the same here. In other words, he's, ta- he's connecting it to the word servant, could be translated slave. The point being, Jesus was 100% God, and watch this, 100% man. And theologians call this the hypostatic union, where you have perfect humanity and undiminished deity united together as one forever. By the way, look at the contrast again in verse 6. Just look at it. Verse 6 says, who, though he was in the form of God, but down in verse 7, notice, but taking the form of a servant. See the difference? There's a huge difference. Jesus never needed to grasp for deity. Watch this. But he did have to grasp for humanity. He became man, right? And grasp this while you're at it. It is only because he grasped humanity with all of, with flesh and blood and all of its limitations that he could die because you can't kill God unless God allows it. And then only if he becomes killable. And that's what Jesus did for us by taking on humanity, right? The word has been the subject, this word emptied. This is the other word we need to just look at. This has been the subject of dissertations, books, and debates for centuries. What does this mean? He didn't grasp, but he emptied himself. The word means exactly what comes to your mind. It literally means, it literally means to pour out until it's all gone. That's what it means. Now, we can look at a, a technical definition, but honestly, this is incomprehensible, isn't it? We, this is way beyond our comprehension. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself and became a human? Now, theologians, again, like to say, well, what this means is, well, you see, he was 100% God, 100% man, while maintaining his deity, that he was God, he... He gave up, so to speak, the independent use of some of his attributes some of the time. And that makes sense. I mean, he wasn't omnipresent, although in his spirit he was. He got tired. He had to eat. He slept. Uh, He even tells us in Mark's gospel that at least while he was earthbound, he didn't know the time of his return. Have you ever read that? So there are some of these limitations he placed upon himself. And I don't know what all this means, but Wesley's otherwise great hymn, one of my favorites, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood, died he for me who caused his pain? I love that hymn. Except Wesley goes a little, he's got a sentimental flaw in the hymn when he says, emptied himself of all but love. Well, we know that's not true because the one who confounded the scholars, who turned water to wine, who healed the sick, raised the dead, stilled the storms, calmed the seas, could hardly be called or described as somebody who emptied himself of all but but love. Right? Now, he does give us a snapshot 
of what it means to empty. He gave us that snapshot in John 13. You remember the story, night before he dies, they go into the upper room, he, he disrobes, takes the basin of water that was relegated to the most abject slave. He takes the basin of water and begins to wash all 12, including Judas's feet. The Midrash, which is the Hebrew commentary of the Old Testament, said that no Hebrew could ever be compelled, even a Hebrew slave, to wash someone's feet. And yet Jesus volunteered. This is one of those points where we should remind ourselves that the greater context is asking you and me if we want to be like Jesus in community with one another. Are we doing this with one another? And here's the point. Jesus didn't grasp. He emptied. Whatever that means in its entirety. Now here's the third part of that inscription when he says, I am now called both God and man, or we might say hyphenated, God-man. Look at verse 7. Being born, there's your Christmas text right there, being born. This takes us back to the incarnation. This is the point in time. This is when the eternal God becomes eternal God-man. Being born in the likeness of men. What does this mean? Jesus was not eternally the God-man. He was eternally God, but he became God-man at a point in time. That's why I have often said at his carnation, at his incarnation, Jesus didn't become less than God. He became more than God. He became the God-man. And by more, I do not mean greater, I mean in addition to. So get that into our heads, okay? In addition to. And this is what turns on verse 8 when it says, so he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. You see that? What I want you to do is just look at that first line. He humbled himself and stare at it for a little bit. He humbled himself. I often pray that the Lord would give me the grace to humble myself so that he or somebody else doesn't have to humble me. But with Jesus, it could only be one way. Him humbling himself. No one, because remember John 1.3 says, he made all things and without him was not anything made that was made, right? So no, no being, no other being could ever humble Jesus. And no other thing could ever humble Jesus because Colossians 1 says that all things were made by him and what? And for him. Nothing, no personality, no being, no circumstance could ever, ever, ever humble Jesus. This is what should cause us to adore him all the more. He humbled himself. Can I get a witness? God, Satan, the demon world, others can and often do humble me. 
and my circumstances have often humbled me. Not with Jesus. Listen to this. He was humbled as no one in history was ever humbled, but only because he humbled himself. Remember what he said in John 10? No one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Have you ever read that? And I remind you, I remind you that the premise of this th great theological treatise is the context is about you and me being like Jesus in community with one another. And that's why personal illustrations fall short every time you try to, you know, you try to illustrate Jesus' humiliation. It's, this is like when I, ah, that's not going to work. Like the godly man who, no. Like the humble woman I met, no. Nothing illustrates the humanity and the humility and the humiliation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And here's the point. If Jesus was willing to humble himself without sin, how much more should you and I be humbling ourselves with sin? This is why Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Recently, I asked someone to humble themselves and repent over their sin. You know what their response was? They wrote me a letter telling me all the wonderful things they're doing. Oh, this is appalling. This is so pride, proud, rather. On the other hand, I know this feeling of defense, and so do you, right? I know what it feels like to defend yourself. Just the other day, I was talking with one of our elders, and we were talking about what about 70% of the men in this church struggle with. And these statistics are holding up, by the way. Somewhere between 60 and 70% of our men are struggling with sexual addiction, pornography, lust in one way or another in the church. And I had just gotten back from a conference and a special set of circumstances I was dealing with there. And I was talking to one of the elders and I asked him, I said, have you struggled with this? Oh, it kind of set him off guard for a moment. And then he confessed that he has struggled with it. He's not struggling with it. God's given him victory over it. And then he said to me, you know, you really haven't given us for all the freedom we have to speak freely in our elders meeting, you haven't given us the freedom in this particular area. And I could feel that defense lawyer just welling up in me. I distinctly remembered a year earlier talking about this. The problem is I put it on the table and I took it off the table. I really didn't create that freedom. And he was right. And I had to acknowledge it. I, I, my defense mechanisms were rising up. But I praise God the Holy Spirit was speaking louder. That caused me to be humble. In the moment. And so I had to do what all of us have to do in community. We have to humble ourselves, right? But here's the point. Jesus was never humbled. He humbled what? Himself. How far did he go? Well, <laughs> the end of verse 8 tells us, right? By becoming obedient to the point of death. 
even death on a cross. The cross in the first century was a, was, the word was used as an obscenity. It was a curse word in Roman society. The beautiful crosses that some of you are wearing right now would be absolutely bizarre in the first century. Bizarre, shocking even. It'd be like you wearing today a, a little necklace with a beautiful little gold electric chair hanging on it. That's why Calvin wrote the humility of Jesus on the cross, quote, is impossible to explain in words suitable to its greatness. Is it any wonder that Paul concludes, and we'll go into this much more thoroughly next week, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't have to reach for glory because he already possessed it. But he did have to reach for you and for me. And though he always possessed glory, some of you don't possess him. He's not in your heart. He's not in your life. He does not reign in you. And it's evident because whenever you're confronted with your sin, you let the lawyer take over. If the Son of God would humble himself to this degree, having no sin, how much more should we humble ourselves with sin? And some of you need to do that this morning. You've been playing the church game all your life and you're really not born again. You've never seen Jesus Christ in his glory and maybe the Spirit of God today has suddenly turned the light on that Jesus isn't just some mamby-pamsy, Casper, Melktoast, cuddly little guy, my friend, my buddy. He is God, the eternal God, who lowered himself to be like you and me without sin and then died for us. And now you see it. Now will you believe in him. Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Will you come? We're preparing for the Lord's table. What a fitting time for the Lord's table. These symbolic elements depicting the perfect, condescending humiliation of Jesus in the bread and his sacrificial death his bleeding and his dying in the juice. What a time to contemplate ourselves. Do you know him? And if you do, will you adore him? God, we thank you for this great theological passage placed in a very practical setting. Help us, O oh God, the church, those who really know you,
to have a mind among ourselves which is ours when it's in Jesus. And may we worship Jesus for who he really is, not some caricature of him, but the one true, eternal, living God who lowered himself, himself. No one ever lowered him. He lowered himself for our sake that we might know him. And I pray for those who don't in this room this morning. If that's you, dear friend, if you're a young person and you, you've, God has shown you and your young heart that you need to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, do so. If, if you're an older person and now you realize you, everything has been phony until today, until this moment, no more. You want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as never before, t- do so right now. And if you're a Christian and you have been like the person I referred to earlier who continues to resist and, and will not repent of their sin, would you repent today? Humble yourself before the one who humbled himself for you. And God, meet with us now as we meet with you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a time for Christians true, born-again Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is not a time for you to partake of these elements. But I urge you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, that you might know him. Amen? Deacons, would you come?